If you're in need of a little Christmas, or perhaps a dose of Hanukkah, then you've come to the right place. Good morning, I'm George Boldarki, and this is a special holiday edition of Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Indeed, it'll soon be Christmas in New York. And coming up on this morning's show, we'll meet the guy responsible for many of the city's major holiday displays. There's a lot of activity here all year round. We have 112 employees during the height of our season. Also today, O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum. We'll delve into the history of the Christmas tree in New York City. We'll also meet a modern-day tree seller and chat with the creator of a tale that puts a Jewish spin on a Christmas classic. In my story, it is Tante Miriam, the magical aunt, who gives her a dreidel that turns into a princess. That's all coming up this morning on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. Despite the slumping economy, there's at least one holiday tradition that most Americans don't seem willing to part with. They're Christmas trees. Sellers and industry analysts say although people are picking smaller trees to save money, sales are holding steady. The Christmas tree wasn't always wildly popular, however. Before the 1850s, it was barely even heard of in New York City. Eva Oles knows a lot about the history of the Christmas tree. She's the education coordinator at the Merchant's House Museum in Manhattan and has put together an exhibit called Christmas Trees of Old New York, Roots of Tradition. I recently caught up with her at the Merchant's House. Right now we're standing in the Greek Revival double parlors of this 19th century row house and we're looking at an 1850s Christmas tree as it would have been decorated um, in the early part of that decade when Christmas trees first became a craze in America. This Christmas tree is on top of a table. Tabletop Christmas trees were one of the features of the early part of the Christmas tree craze. Although there were certainly full-scale Christmas trees available, a lot of families chose to put theirs on top of a table in the descriptions that we found. Now, I would imagine this is a live tree, not a fake one. This is a fake one. Hmm. Would it have been fake in the 1800s? Absolutely not. It probably would have been a spruce or a Douglas fir, perhaps cut from the top, and they were actually sold in the green markets. The first Christmas tree seller was in 1851 in the Washington Market, which was over on the west side in Chelsea. But this tree is fake because we're in a museum and we can't risk bringing in the pests or the water. It's funny to think of only one Christmas tree seller in New York City when now you see one in every other corner. Well, what's really funny is that the year before and all the years before that, there had been no Christmas tree sellers, which doesn't mean there weren't any Christmas trees. Certainly those who wanted them could go out and get them. So the Christmas tree then started where exactly? Well, the Christmas tree started in Germany, for all that I can gather. Um, The legend says that Martin Luther brought the first Christmas tree indoors and decorated it. It was brought to America first by German immigrants, but it took the publication of an illustration of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert standing around their Christmas tree in Windsor Castle in 1850 to spur the onslaught of the Christmas tree in America. Can we take a closer look at this Christmas tree? Because I want to see how it's decorated and how close it is to what it would have been like in the 19th century. 
Well, our first inaccuracy, and I think the biggest one, is that we're using electric candles on our tree. In the 19th century, trees were lit by actual mini candles, or small tapers as they were called. And I actually read a description of somebody decorating a tree, rubbing alcohol on the wicks of the candle so they would light faster. Needless to say, they were only lit for a few minutes while the children looked on in awe. And there was always a bucket of sand and a bucket of water nearby. Smart idea. Indeed, especially if you're talking about live greenery here. There are some wooden figures on the tree as well. Those represent toys. In the early days, Christmas trees were primarily seen only in houses where there were children present, as Christmas was a very child-centered holiday in the early part of the 1850s. And the trees would have been decked uh, with nuts and fruits and berries, but the primary decorations were actually toys that would then be taken off and given away to the children who were present. Was it common to put presents under the tree or were the presents largely on the tree as you mentioned? I think it depended upon the size of the present and their weight and you know you always have to be practical here and the important thing to remember I think about history is that just because you find it written in an article one way or drawn in a picture one way doesn't mean everybody did it that way and I think if somebody had a very heavy present they would know better than to try to hang it on the tree. Were Christmas trees only for the wealthy at the time? I think that Christmas trees in your house would have been practiced um, either by someone who had an ethnicity, such as a Germanic descent, that would incline them to participate in the custom, or else by someone who was following the fashions. There were also a lot of accounts published in the New York Times that described Christmas trees being erected for the poor, such as an article I found about the Christmas tree set up by the Ladies' Mission at Five Points. I see that there's holly on the mantle around the fireplace here. Would that have been traditional back in the 1800s? Well, greenery um, decorations for the holidays go back to the times of the Romans, and it's never really been an interrupted custom. In fact, even in churches all through the centuries, they have used greenery around the holiday times to represent the rebirth and the eternal greenery and, and life and things like that. So I think the greenery is something that would have been traditional at the time. It's the Christmas tree and the fact that it was decorated and used as a conveyance for giving toys to children that really began in the middle of the 19th century in New York. I see that there are poinsettias on the floor here. Would they have been common in the 1800s? Joel Poinsett was the ambassador to Mexico, and I can actually say I was related to him. And Mr. Poinsett went to Mexico where the poinsettias grow naturally, and he brought them back, giving them their name. Since they are a beautiful, beautiful red flower, the original varietal was only red. And since they bloom around the holiday time, they became an ideal plant for celebrations. And he was operating in the 1820s, so they definitely would have been available. I don't see any figurines of Santa Claus anywhere in the house here. Well, Santa Claus, as we know him, is actually a descendant of the old Dutch St. Nicholas, who um, Washington Irving immortalized in his Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York, which was published in um, 18. Oh, it was published in the early, early 1800s, and he actually wrote an essay that was published in 1820 or 21, in which he described St. Nicholas flying over the city and giving gifts to the little children. It was a year later that Clement Clark Moore wrote his poem, which was originally entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas. In the 1860s, Thomas Nast began to draw illustrations of St. Nicholas, who later became Santa Claus, and it was he who created the form that we first know, but that was not until the beginning of the Civil War that we began to see that Santa Claus. What surprised you most in researching the history of the Christmas tree in New York City? I think what surprised me the most is that with all the German immigrants who were living in the city, that Christmas trees did not catch on sooner. 
I was also really surprised when I began researching Christmas trees to learn how very little Christmas was actually celebrated in the middle of the 19th century in New York. New Year's Day was actually a much more important holiday for many New Yorkers, and Christmas, which had only recently been legalized in the state, was actually celebrated on different days if it happened to fall on the Sabbath because they felt that going to church on a Sunday was more important than celebrating Christmas. And in New York, we again have a tradition that's peculiar, and that is the custom of New Year's Day calling, which was an old Dutch tradition, and it involved going from house to house on New Year's Day, renewing old acquaintances, patching up quarrels from the year, and drinking a whole lot of punch. You got pretty much um, slathered as you walked around the streets of New York celebrating, but people also exchanged gifts with each other on New Year's Day. So Christmas was really for children, while New Year's Day was for the entire city. And I think you would have seen more of the celebrations focused on New Year's Day while Christmas was observed by by a visit to church, or perhaps by a meal and a few exchanges of small gifts. Eva Alls is the education coordinator at the Merchant's House Museum in Manhattan. The exhibit Christmas Trees of Old New York, Roots of Tradition, is on display there through January 12th. On a recent chilly afternoon, we hit the streets of downtown Manhattan to find out what modern-day tree vendors have to say about their experiences selling Christmas trees. And we met one guy who's been doing it a long, long time. I'm Billy Romp, R-O-M-P, and we're here on the corner of Jane Street and 8th Avenue. This is our 21st season selling Christmas trees right here on, on this corner. The trees come from all over. We get some from Pennsylvania, some from North Carolina. We have trees here from Canada. I'm a retailer, so I buy them from all over. This year, my team consists of Timmy. He's my 12, almost 13-year-old son. Henry, my 17-year-old son. And James, uh, my son-in-law. Back when I was younger, we all shared the night duty, but now my son-in-law, James, who is a hard worker, he does every night from 10 o'clock at night until 10 in the morning. That's his shift, seven days a week until Christmas. So uh, the old guy with the white beard gets to sleep a little bit more here (laughs) and uh, do a day shift. (laughs) I happen to have a gift for remembering names, and so after 21 years, it has made me the mayor of this corner, and... If you want to meet some of the neighbors, just stand out here. I'll introduce you. I know everybody that walks by, everybody that has a dog. I know everybody from the cops to the transvestites. And and it's a a wonderful neighborhood. I know the kids, and I even know some dog names. (laughs) Hello, this is Billy. Bart. Bart Bowler. I'll be damned. How are you? Good, good. I am at this moment. Bart Bollert. We've been buying from Billy for about 20 years. We used to live in that building across the street on the top floor. And one December we looked out the window and there was this red truck below and all these Christmas trees. And we were like, what is that down there? So we came down and met Billy. And we've been coming for 20 years. He's uh, such a sweet guy. Um, He's like a friend. So, um, you know, it wouldn't be Christmas without him. I don't have any thoughts of retirement uh, at all. I'll be here as long as my two legs will carry me down here. My kids will be doing all the heavy lifting, and I'll be sitting next door sipping coffee. But I'll be here every year till the year I die. Billy Romp sells Christmas trees in Manhattan's West Village. He's been doing it every season for more than 20 years. Romp's even published a book about his experiences called Christmas on Jane Street, A True Story. It's published by William Morrow. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. 
From electric snowflakes in the facade of Saks Fifth Avenue to the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, New York City is all decked out for the holidays. The South Bronx company American Christmas creates a lot of the city's holiday magic. I recently checked out their headquarters and chatted with CEO Fred Schwamm. Your company spreads holiday cheer throughout New York City. Indeed we do. We've been around for 40 years now. My father founded the company in 1968 and I took over the business from him in 1988 and we've been pretty widely recognized as the leading Christmas decorating company for quite a long time now. Where are we right now? We are in our headquarters in the Bronx on Bronx River Avenue. I have 80,000 square feet here. Right now the building is pretty much emptied out because we just completed our installation season but there's a lot of activity here all year round. We have 112 employees during the height of our season. 80 of those are uh, seasonal employees. Um, And then there's uh, 32 full-time year-round employees, and we spend the whole year planning and preparing for Christmas. So right now you're catching your breath, though, after having done all of your installations? Yeah, it's a very, very intense period from mid-October right through mid-January, but now we have a two-week lull where we can relax a little bit and catch up on some rest and enjoy the holidays. And then right after Christmas, we'll go back out and take it all down. Where would we see your work in New York City? We decorate Radio City Music Hall, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bergdorf Goodman, Bloomingdale's, the McGraw Hill Building, the Time and Life Building, uh, the New York Palace Hotel. Uh, A lot of the major commercial real estate companies and hotels are clients of ours. I know that people are always surprised to learn that Mr. Christmas, you are Jewish. Well, I think everyone always gets a kick out of that fact. You know, inevitably I'm asked, you know, what I do at my house. My house must be so special. And the fact of the matter is I I put a menorah in my house and that's the extent of my holiday decorating. But the reality is what I do really isn't about religion. Um, It's about creating a mood and an atmosphere and an environment that hopefully lends to the great spirit that exists this time of year that is separate of religion for the most part. I understand you're responsible for those giant Christmas lights on 6th Avenue, am I right? We are. There's a, a display that has been in place for a number of years and, and is fairly popular in Manhattan that sits in front of the McGraw-Hill building, and it consists of what in essence is a light string, but the light bulbs are seven and a half feet tall, and uh, it's pretty it's pretty well known. And those larger-than-life nutcrackers on 6th Avenue are also yours? They are. They're 13-foot nutcrackers that sit in front of the UBS building at 1285 Avenue of the Americas. And again, it's one of those designs that we developed years ago and has become rather iconic in terms of, you know, holiday images that are very recognizable in the city year after year. So when they're not there, they live here in this warehouse? Everything lives here during the the off-season, if you will. And we go through a very extensive process um, between February and October whereby we refurbish all of the materials and repaint and refinish and touch up and put on new lights in addition to building all of the new designs and projects that we work on annually. How do you get those giant nutcrackers onto 6th Avenue? They come in about six or seven different parts and pieces. So we remove the head and we remove the legs and we, we remove the arms so we're able to kind of you know mobilize the piece in that way. I know that you said this is a a 365-day-a-year job, but did you ever think about branching out, doing other holidays, 4th of July perhaps? You know, in the early years, I really thought that I needed to develop another business separate of Christmas decorating. 
for a lot of obvious reasons, not the least of which is, you know, cash flow concerns in a seasonal business. But eventually I came to realize that we had an opportunity to really distinguish ourselves in this industry. And I'd like to think we've done that and have developed their reputation as really being the premier holiday decorating company in America. And as far as other holidays are concerned, most of my clients really only decorate for Christmas. They're not doing any kind of large-scale display for the other holidays, and to the extent that they may be decorating, it's relatively small-scale, and as such, they're able to handle it themselves. Do you do anything for Hanukkah at all, a giant menorah, anything like that? We do menorahs all all over, and um, almost all of my building lobbies uh, who have a Christmas tree also have a menorah. There isn't really much else to do beyond menorahs for Hanukkah, uh, but we do many, many menorahs all all over the city. The economy, of course, isn't doing so well. Has that affected business this year? We're fortunate in that most of our business is contracted, um, and most of our clients, when we put together an initial design, they'll sign three- or four-year contracts with us. So for the most part, those designs will remain the same during that period of time. We always have the ability to tweak it, but for the most part, they remain intact. So overall, we actually have, have we're doing okay, you know, considering what's happening in the in the economy right now. Um, a lot of our retail clients are, in in some cases, are are having a hard time because retail is is obviously struggling this holiday season. But I'm happy to say that we're we're holding our own. Yeah, and I guess it's also hard to skimp on Christmas, right? Isn't it? Well, you know, one of the interesting things about our business is that even in difficult times. Building lobbies are still going to put up their Christmas tree, and the retailers still are going to decorate. This is the most significant time of year for them. So whereas they may cut other budgets throughout the year, the holiday budgets typically remain intact. Anything in the warehouse here that you want to point out to us? Sure. Let's take a walk around, and I'll give you a tour. We maintain um, an inventory of Christmas trees and wreaths and ornaments and lights and ribbons and in the many, many thousands in, in all types of shapes and sizes and colors. We work with some domestic factories. We also travel overseas several times every year and go directly into the factories to design and develop products that are unique to my business. And as a result, all of the services that we offer to our clients are completely customized and one of a kind. Uh, We don't have any two jobs that are alike. You may come to recognize the American Christmas style, but you will never see the same exact design in in more than one location. And that's important not only for us as a selling tool, but it's important to our clients that, you know, they know that they can stand out and distinguish themselves from their competitors. And we wouldn't ever want a client in midtown Manhattan to walk across the street and see the same thing. Tell me about your designers. What kinds of backgrounds do they have? Our designers typically are not coming here with resumes that read Christmas decorating, but they're artists and painters and sculptors. Let me point out that there are giant wreaths hanging above our heads. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we utilize every inch of our warehouse facility, and uh, one of the ways that we store our wreaths is by hanging them from the ceiling. Fred, talk to me about your deadline pressures. You know, we've grown very steadily over the years. In fact, we've grown an average of 18% a year for the last 20 years. So one of the challenges with that growth is all of our new business still has, has to be installed within the same period of time. So basically from October 20th through around December 15th, 
that's when it all happens. That's when it all happened 20 years ago, and that's still the same period of time when it happens now. So um, as you can imagine, the, the pressure and the deadlines associated with all of our projects make the organization of it all you know, very, very difficult. I'm happy to say that we have never, ever been late with an installation. We've never had to call a client and delay the schedule or change the schedule. And the only way we're able to make that happen is by bringing in a team of people who are completely dedicated to our process and having a lot of really great systems in place and staying on those deadlines. It's absolutely a must. I can't, I can't delay Christmas. I guess that would kind of be like Santa Claus coming on December 26th. Exactly. That would be unacceptable. And installing a, a midtown Manhattan Class A office lobby a day after it was scheduled would also be unacceptable. <laughs> Fred, thank you so much, and happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Fred Schwamm is the CEO of American Christmas. The South Bronx Company is responsible for many of New York City's most prominent holiday displays. The Radio City Christmas Spectacular typically gets all of the attention when it comes to holiday shows in New York City, but it's certainly not the only show in town. The Klezmer Nutcracker runs through January 3rd at the Vital Theater on 76th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. The stage presentation is based on the book The Golden Dreidel by Ellen Kushner. Ellen's a novelist, performer, and host of the public radio show Sound and Spirit. She's with us this morning. Good morning, Ellen. Good morning, George. Tell us about the Klezmer Nutcracker. It actually began as a radio special, a public radio special that was also called The Golden Dreidel, a Klezmer Nutcracker for Hanukkah. And the idea came to me when I listened to an album by a Boston klezmer group called Shirim, who had taken Tchaikovsky's traditional nutcracker suite and turned it into this rollicking klezmer suite of tunes. And I heard this and uh, thought, you know, this really calls for a story to go with this tune, a sort of revised version of the uh, nutcracker where instead of being a little girl named uh, Clara who goes to a Christmas party, it's a little girl named Sarah who goes to a Hanukkah party. We're going to talk more about that story, but first of all, what is klezmer music? Klezmer music is the music that a lot of people associate with the good time party music, often the wedding music of the Eastern European Jews and, of course, their descendants who immigrated to America. If you ever see a movie with a big Jewish wedding scene in it, what they're probably playing is klezmer music, and it's one of these really interesting interesting, syncretic musics that has as much to do with the country that it develops in as the people who create it. In other words, the Jewish musicians would uh, also team up with the local, whatever, Bulgarian musicians, the gypsy or Roma musicians, and go from town to town, as itinerant musicians will, playing this music for parties and feasts and weddings and what have you. So it's got a real particular sound that sounds very Eastern European, but has, in the case of uh, Klezmer, a real sort of Jewish uh, tonality to it, I guess you'd have to say. And, of course, when all of these uh, Klezmer immigrants came to America, they discovered jazz and the blues and all that stuff. And that also had its effect. And now, in the 21st century, their descendants are playing, you know, Afrobeat-inflected Klezmer and rock-inflected klezmer. It's really a living, living music. Is your story, The Golden Dreidel, based on Jewish tradition? Absolutely is based on Jewish tradition. It adheres, at the beginning at least, to the plot of the Nutcracker Ballet, which is that the little girl goes to the party and the mysterious magic relative gives her 
a magic gift. Now, in the ballet, of course, it's Uncle Drosselmeyer, and he gives her this nutcracker that turns into a prince. In my story, it is Tante Miriam, the magical aunt, who gives her a dreidel that turns into a princess, but it's a princess is a little kid like her, and they go off to the magic world. Now, in the ballet, nothing happens. They go to the magic world, and there's a bunch of dancing. It's a bunch of ethnic dancing. In the book and the new play, we have adventures, and the adventures are all based on Jewish folklore, Jewish tradition, and also Jewish ethics. I mean, the, the sort of subtle messages that I'm trying to convey to kids are things that I think are central to Judaism. You play Auntie Miriam on stage, don't you? Yes, I do. To my absolute amazement, I do. Why don't we now have you read a section of the book, and we'll play some klezmer music to go along with it. The dreidel girl looked up into the distance. Do you like adventures, she asked. Sometimes, said Sarah. What kind? Maybe ones with demons? Off in the distance, a grayish cloud bristled with angry motion, and soon both girls could see the shape of huge beasts and hear the flap of wings. What is it? Sarah whispered. Demons! For the first time, the dreidel girl's voice was tinged with fear. Hordes of them, an entire demon army! I thought they were still locked up in Solomon's cave! Sarah gulped. Well, they're not. What should we do? If they're on the march, it means only one thing. The demons have escaped, and we'd better run and warn the king. All of a sudden, the dreidel started to spin. Sarah grabbed for her friend, but a powerful force was pulling her away. Help me, Sarah, cried her friend. Sarah tried to hook her arm, but it slipped from her grasp as the dreidel turned, faster and faster, like a dancer doing a million pirouettes. The dreidel spun straight toward the demon king, and with a cry of triumph, the demons surrounded her and caught her in a giant net. Come back, cried Sarah, but it was too late. The golden dreidel was in the hands of the demon king's armies. So the whole rest of the story in the book and in the play is how Sarah tries to rescue her friend, the golden dreidel princess, from the hands of the demons. So much focus this time of year is placed on Christmas. Here in New York City, we have the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Right across the street is the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. How important do you think it is to have a show like this playing in New York City? I think it's tremendously important to have something that is not about Christmas and Christmas traditions at this time of year for two reasons. The first is it's great to have a little variety. And indeed, I feel like my show is not just for Jewish kids. It's for anybody who wants to come out and have a good time. When I was growing up, 
I went to Nutcracker every year. I was in the Christmas pageant at school and, you know, played a little Christmas tree. I sing Messiah every year if I can get to a Messiah sing. I love that stuff. So why not come and complete the experience and come and do what I like to do this time of year, which is to focus on latkes and candles and parties and screaming fights with your cousins, which also happens in the play, because that's what family parties are like. And of course, magical adventures are what we all dream of. So for a Jewish kid, I did all that stuff and I loved it. But I also knew that my stuff somehow wasn't as good, wasn't as valuable in the general culture. For me, as a Jewish kid, I felt very strongly that what my family did was important. But I knew the popular culture didn't really care. And for a Jewish kid to be able to go to a, a play in a real theater on Broadway, even if it is only Broadway in 76th, and see their own stuff, their own traditions, their own holiday being celebrated, even if it's only in a play, I just think that is so validating for kids. And then for me, I was a kid who loved magic and magical adventures. And to give a magical adventure in a Jewish context, to me, is something that I would have really loved and kind of needed when I was a kid. So I'm hoping I can give that to kids now. The entire cast at the end of the show goes out into the uh, into the lobby and signs programs for kids and talks to people. And I have to say, the adults really dig the show because it's got a lot of in-jokes in it. And it's not, it's not for little, little kids. It's for older children. You know, I would say sort of 5 to 12 is my ideal audience. And uh, so it's a little more sophisticated. In terms of production, it's certainly a lot more sophisticated than most children's shows. Ellen Kushner, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be at WFUV. The Klezmer Nutcracker runs through January 3rd at Manhattan's Vital Theater. That's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Happy holidays. <laughs>